Hello, and welcome back to the CF Armed Forces podcast with me, your host, James Clark. Our guest on this month's podcast is Sir Mike Penning, MP. Sir Mike's ministerial career has spanned multiple departments, including health, transport, Northern Ireland, justice, the Home Office and the MOD. He was most recently Minister for the Armed Forces from 2016 to 2017. He's also represented the constituency of Hemel Hempstead in Hertfordshire throughout his tenure in Parliament. Prior to winning the seat, he was a Grenadier Guardsman, firefighter, political journalist and media advisor to CCHQ and various party leaders. He's currently the Conservative Party Vice-Chair for Candidates. We recorded this episode live in the Palace of Westminster, so please forgive the background noise. So Mike, thank you so much for joining us on this month's episode of the CF Armed Forces podcast, which we're recording from uh, PCH. Um, in your own words, could you describe for our listeners your personal experiences in the military in the 70s, your military connections, and also how you feel your experience as a guardsman has sort of influenced your life? Well, I'm certainly no, no uh, brilliant soldier. Um, I joined the army at 16 as a junior guardsman. In those days, you could go to Osersry as a junior leader or be a junior guardsman, and I was very much a junior guardsman at Purbright. So for nearly two years, I learned how to do ceremonial drill. Um, but actually, as a young man, I was a bit of a tearaway, and I, I loved my sport, which I still do. And it was actually, for me, the best thing that could have ever happened to me. I didn't have the greatest stable home life, I hated school, mostly because I didn't know at the time, but I was dyslex- I'm dyslexic. Um, and that was only picked up by an army education officer about six months into being in juniors. Um, but, you know, I got, I got acting corporal a few times, got busted down a few times. Um, I went on, after a while, I got a bit bored with ceremonial. Um, so I used to volunteer for every course known to me, and I ended up being a B2 medic, which, you know, for me, my mother being a nurse, actually, I thought later on in life, maybe something where I would end up going. Right. Um, but actually, medics in those days were, weren't treated as, I think, as respectfully as certainly have seen since operations. Mm. And I'm quite rightly now, we understand, they call them battlefield medics these mm. days. I was an old-fashioned paramedic, right. um, army medic. Um, and I mean, it was brilliant. I mean, I, I, mean, I used to get off duty because I was playing rugby, get off guard duty because I was boxing, get off guard duty because I was, you know, duty medic or something. Guard duty is very boring. I was going to say, it sounds like you didn't like guard duty. Picket or picket <laughs> duty or anything like that. But it was very early on in, in my time, it struck me that just how difficult it, it is being in the military as mm. well. Mm. Northern Ireland was particularly difficult in mm. those days. Yeah. I was a junior on fire picket duty at Purbright when the two bombs went off in Guildford. Right. Um, the horse and groom and the seven stars lived with me for the rest of my life. Um, talking to colleagues that were there on the night and things like that. And then I had the honour and privilege of serving with Captain Robert Nyrak in Northern Ireland and as my captain of three company, 1st Battalion. He hated guard duty as well. (laughs) So we used to do a lot of spiring in the gym. He was two weights lower than me, but he's a very good boxer. Right. A character. A a real character. And and do you think some of the sort of values and standards that you learn in the army as a guardsman, do you think you've kind of been able to pull them through into your political career and well and also of course the public service that follow. I think whatever happens um, whether you love being in the military or hate it it, it molds you mm. in, and, and some people like that and some people 
don't I? From from me, I've, I've been in, in public service for most of my adult life now, and I think it's when I came out, went into fire. I, I, I found it very difficult, like most guys when they leave the armed forces, especially single men. Mm. Adjustment is, was really hard. I yeah. couldn't go home. Um, I kind of semi came out and transferred, re-enlisted, whatever way you want to call it, into the RMC. Oh, right. Mostly because I wanted to go guards para, yep. and we'd already been this, this, just disbanded. I was very much involved with airborne, yep. free fall, and all that sort of thing. Awesome. My dad had been in the para reg, right. um, and so that was the. But the only one of the only units left doing independent para was the medics. I was already a B two medic, so it was a natural movement. Yeah. The guards don't like people transferring out. Once you're a guardsman, you're always a guardsman. I think um, that's still the case. Um, and but I, I, I think it, it it's moulded me for good or for bad um, in trying to understand some of the I went to a different sort of university if you know what I mean yeah um, and the university of life is probably the best one that gives you a, I think an opportunity to be a decent politician absolutely um, you've held a number of very senior roles in parliament including justice and policing along with Northern Ireland can you explain to our listeners what the life of a minister is like and also if you'd like to kind of reflect on your time as a minister for the armed forces when Theresa May was the prime minister, being a minister uh, um, is an un unbelievable privilege, but it's what you make of it. So I remember being told by, and I won't name who he was, but a, a former minister saying to me when I first became a minister at Department of Transport, saying that they, you know, they'll give you a box every night, if not two boxes every night. Now the answer to that question is how you deal with that amount of work. And he said, well the best thing to do is to say to them that you want the phone number and the name of every civil servant that sub puts a mission in your box if it comes to your box over the weekend. So you can call them with queries. The box shrinks enormously. <laughs> yeah. And then secondly, why, why can't you give me that work during the course of the day? Uh, when I've not got meetings, so you can do the submissions there, and your civil servants are around you, so you can ask them those questions. Yeah. And then the second and the third thing really is, ask for one of the small boxes. <laughs> and if they can't get it in the small box, <coughs> they should have been done the work with you before. It was brilliantly useful. And I watched my colleagues walking around with boxes galore and sitting up till three, four in the morning doing their box. No, I, I, look, it can be done, but you yeah. might, you've got to be, the, Minister of Oversight is what it says on the tin, not civil, <coughs> not civil servant oversight. Um, so I don't know. So I was very lucky. I did two and a half years at transport, um, shipping minister, longest one since the Second World War. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I remember saying to the Prime Minister, you do realise my constituency is the furthest away from the sea anywhere in the country? And he said, yes, because that means you'll ask questions differently. Did you have any shipping experience? None at all. Absolutely none at all. And the first job I had to decide on it was how we would reform Her Majesty's Coast Guard. And how do you cope with being thrown into the deep end like um, Ask the questions that no one else expects you to answer. Ask, sorry. Um, so that was interesting. One minister a row I absolutely hated. I hated DWP. Um, I hated WP because it was all, all about money, not about people. Um, so my budget was around about... 1.2, 1.5 billion pounds a week, and it's a spreadsheet. It's a huge occupation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So trying to break away into talking about people was ever so difficult. So I said to the David Cameron and then Prime Minister very early on, 
of being a DWP, this isn't for me. I need to be an operational type job. And if you haven't got an operational type job, which I'd just come from in Northern Ireland yeah. as a counter-terrorism minister there, um, then frankly, you'd better let me go to the bank ventures. And, and so some of the roles, it sounds like some of the ministerial roles are more Excel spreadsheet details orientated and some are more people. Well, there are very, very, mm. very few operational jobs yeah. left. So even though I did police, Mm. Police is not an operational job, right. and anybody that's a police and crime commissioner will tell you that. You know, your job is to facilitate the yep. police's operations. Yep. Um, the one job that was, without a doubt, operational was MinAF. Yeah. So deploying our boys and girls around the world uh, is an honour and a privilege, but also something that keeps you awake at night. I remember vividly being told that minister, would you agree to deploy? Um, some of our boys and girls from a field ambulance unit and engineers to South Sudan. And I said, well, yes, but who's providing the force protection? And of course, because it was a UN mission, it was going to be um, a UN regiment. <coughs> I'll be polite about what country they came from. Um, I wasn't comfortable with that. And I delayed it so much so that I actually went to Colchester and sent the medics on leave over Christmas because they were being held and I said I'm not going to agree before Christmas so you guys can yeah. biggest cheer I ever got I'll bet, I'll bet. the most popular minister yeah. ever uh, <laughs> and then promised them that when I did deploy they would have force protection of some description that we could control mm. and, and by the way I'll come out and see them we eventually agreed with the UN that we would have combat engineers more combat than engineers well we don't have combat engineers <laughs> yeah, as you're aware um, <laughs> Well, that was a company of one rifles right, okay. from, from Belfast. Um, other countries have combat engineers, so I think the UN guys thought, we know what you're doing, but hey-ho. And then three months later, I visited them in South Sudan. I went to Somalia, South Sudan, Uganda, Kenya, um, but I stayed with them actually in, in South Sudan, and what a horrible, horrible experience it is out there. Yeah. The life changing from what we were doing out of you know, creating clean drinking water mm. and things like that, putting a, a field hospital up, which was supposed to have handed over to the UN. Last time I looked, we hadn't done that. We were still manning it. Um, but there we are, you know. But it greatest job for me, I don't know, I've done six, seven departments, um, MinAF by far. You know, it, it, it is an interesting job. Like you lay in bed. This is long before your Ukraine situation. You lay in bed and you get a phone call. Three in the morning. So, Minister, we have, um, we've just scrambled because we have a bear over Shetland. Can we have your permission to intercept? That's an operational job. That's big decisions, yeah. 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 And you go back to sleep and you think, have I just started World War Three? <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, it, it is... If you're not a Secretary of State, and I would argue that even in some Secretary of State's jobs, probably the majority of them, you're not in operational control of your department. Yeah. But the MNAF job is, it's the one bit that's left. Well, it sounds so punchy and the way that you talk about it and the emotion that I can sort of see, like it's, no, you are responsible. it sounds amazing. But you, you know, for me as, as a, a guy, as I said earlier, I didn't make corporal. Mm. Well, corp the guards ranks are strange as we know, so I didn't make Lance Sergeant, made 18 Lance Corporal. Yeah. To be that guy that is consciously making sure that as best you can that they're, they're as safe as possible. Mm. I was not going to sign off. Yeah, and I said to Michael Fallon, who was the Secretary of State, 
we are not sending our guys to South Sudan unless I can be comfortable that we have enough force protection for yeah. them. Yeah. Then there we are. And, and that's where, so do you think that's where um, having, you know, having a basic understanding of the military, having been in some of those situations, having, knowing people who are still in, do you think <coughs> that plays an important part in that? Or do you think that as a, as a good politician, as a good servant to the public, you should always be taking into account people's safety? I think right earlier on I said that you have to take life experiences yeah. w with you. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, and I'd, I'd done, what, 11 years in the fire service as, as well, um, where you're conscious about not only rescuing the public, but as best you can, keeping your, you and your colleagues safe as well. Yeah. So that, that kind of synergy or narrative comes with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, and I'm still very conscious now about, for instance, when I when I sit, like most squaddies, I think sit in a restaurant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm on my back to the wall. I want to. And when my wife first met me, she thought I was completely paranoid. <laughs> but you know, in those days, the IRA was still blowing up pubs yeah, and restaurants, right. and um, and I can't take that away. Yeah. And now with the risk with MPs, with the David Amos situation, course, yeah. and um, which it, the David Amos situation wasn't. It was a Paulie David was a really close friend of mine. I, known David for so many years um, but it it was gonna happen I mean it's not you know the Joe Cox was is yep. gonna happen yeah and I'm really sorry that that we are in a situation now that people that want to be MPs have to be ridiculously aware of their the risk to them and their family while at the same time not detaching themselves from the public that they represent and that is a really, really difficult thing to weigh up. To balance, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. And of course, and, and you know, I, you know you, it's both your your position and your staff, and your, as you've said, and your family. You know, it's a huge, there's a huge threat. But there's also I mean, a huge privilege in doing the role. Yeah. So it's so, such a complicated. So you, yeah, and, and, and you know, it's all well and good saying, "Well, no, you're not going to drive me away from the job I love to do." I've got, I, you know, I had a gentleman saying he was going to burn my house down and murder my kids. And that's... And, you know, and he... We've got to balance that, haven't yeah. we? Yeah, uh, no, um, Frank, the, the, the police then interviewed him and he, he wasn't well. He's, lots of these people that I'm, I'm sure, you know, the guy's just gone away for a very long time, forever, I hope, who murdered David Amos. Yeah. But he, he can't be of a sound mind. I just... Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm not, and I don't want him, I don't want people to think, oh, well, I, that's an excuse. It's not an excuse. No. But, it, it, you know, there are some unbelievably nasty people out there. Mm. And social media, I'm afraid, has absolutely changed this mm. job, mm. fundamentally. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I used to work for an MP in 2005 to 2007. And even in the change from then to 2020, 2021, 15 years is just enormous. It's completely old. Yeah. You know, the, the post box, for example, you know, instead of 50 letters and 10 emails, it's 300 emails and five letters or, you know, it's... Yeah, I mean, what's, what's so interesting about the job of being a constituency MP is how do you balance that role? So, yeah, the vast majority of stuff that comes into you these days comes in by email. Mm. And just like the junk that you get into your inbox, you have to have someone that can vet that of and say, well, this person needs help today. Mm. I've, been, I've got a constituent that is, his sister is very, very ill mm. in Czechoslovakia. He supplied his passport and his Czech passport, he's a joint citizen, to the Home Office, uh, Passport Office, um, 
five weeks ago. They promised to get it back to him. He's got it due to go next weekend. As so we haven't got it. Now, that email that came in from him was amongst another 300 emails that came in that day. Of course, yeah. And your quality, the staff and their commitment is really, I mean, I, we're back, I never shut my surgeries down as such. Um, and I've all, because of my police stroke, armed forces stroke, Northern Ireland background, I've always had enhanced security panic buttons and things like that in the office anyhow. So we're no different than we were, except I now insist that my staff wear their panic buttons around their neck. Yeah. We've always had them, but I never kind of pushed them to do it. Whereas if you walk past my office to go to the front door in, in my constituency, I will call you back yeah. if I'm there now. Yeah. And Angie, who uh, you've been dealing with in my office, and my office manager, happens to be my wife as well, She will. she's exactly the same. Yeah. So we just have to be conscious, but not destroy what we have in this country, which is, I think, the best parliamentary system in the world. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, I hesitate to move on, but I, but I want to, because I want to get on some of the other questions that I've got for you, Mike. Um, so, so we've talked about kind of action and operations, um, but we're also CFR Force interested in policy as well. And we've had the ISDR and the Defence Command paper. Um, now, obviously, we've got the war in Ukraine where we're looking at potentially large-scale tank battles in the Donbass. Mm. Our Defence Command paper in ISDR was more focused on cyber warfare and you know, a, a pivot um, to the east. Mm. Where do you think UK defence is? I mean, obviously that's a really broad question, but do you think the Ukraine situation has made us rethink our defence posture, or, or do you think it's... Well, I think we were already doing that. So for those of us that served in British Army of the Rhine, yeah. face, facing one direction, um, one of the last operational decisions I signed off was to deploy troops to uh, Estonia and Lithuania. Right, yeah. And, and Alma to do yeah. into that position. So we, that's long before any, uh, of, the, any of this, but we saw where it was going. Mm. And it has to be a balance between, as you say, the cyber mm. tank. People have to be aware that, you know, if we're talking about a modern tank, and we won't go into the new light tank and the problems that's got. Yep. But, I mean, basically that's run by computers as well as people. Yes. And you can shut down a tank with a cyber attack. So we have to be very conscious that we build in capability that has actually cyber-proof, in other words, men. Yes. Men and women can take yep. over that role. I, I think the, the other thing is, is that even even if you go through any warfare, and I'm no, you know, historian on this, you can, tanks take ground; they don't hold it. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And so there will always be that requirement for the boots on the ground, and that balance of how you do that um, is probably being shown to the Russians in the in the most obvious way yep. that you can imagine. And I think all all um, countries that have have a regular armed forces and not constrict armed forces like Russia are experiencing the problems with at the moment will have to continually address. So I think it's the cycle of the defence reviews yeah. is it, it, probably not helpful anymore because by the time you've done the review reorganised, repatched into a new, new yeah. system, yeah, new world so, yeah. Yeah. And, and then the churn within the MOD is, is such that one minute you'll have, you know, someone from the RF in charge, the next minute you've got army, and then you've got a bootleg room, yeah. and then, then the, you know, who knows? The, I think 
the key, from my point of view, is making sure that we sweat the assets of our, our armed forces the best we can. Yeah. So one of the criticisms I had inside the MOD, which I didn't succeed in arguing the point, is that we have too many uniformed quality people yeah. inside the MOD doing jobs which jobs. are frankly irrelevant to their career and their capabilities as armed forces. So why on earth we've got, you know, you have to do two years of the equivalent rank of a major in, in the press office at the MOD, I really don't know. Absolutely, when you could be commanding tanks or commanding companies of infantry yeah. soldiers or, or... No, do you need to understand structures and things like that? You need to, yes, you do, but isn't that why you don't? You, you do the senior officers' courses? Yeah. Um, um, but, you know, if you... One of the things I used to insist on when I was in the MOD is, wherever possible, um, uniform personnel would be in what it says on the tin, their uniform. Yeah. Well, they didn't like that. <laughs> oh, they didn't like that. And I'm convinced one of the reasons they didn't like that is because the likes of me could see just how many people are in there in, in uniform. Yeah, should, yeah. They should be, be perhaps somewhere else. Because um, you, you remember, you've got the MOD and then it's replicated in the heads, the headquarters of the Army, the headquarters of the Navy, or go to Whale Island. There's, there's blinking bodies galore of all ranks. Yeah. Somebody explain to me what everybody one of these is doing. Yeah. You know, need to make sure you sweat the assets. And then you have to balance that with who you're using on operations. So one of the biggest reasons that guys and girls leave the armed forces is um, pressures at home. Absolutely. So yeah, we've, we've, we're sorting out a lot better now. Accommodation, you, you, you can use some of your allowances to buy your property. A lot of people don't want to bring their kids up in a, in a garrison. I, I don't blame them. Yeah. I really don't blame them. But on the other hand, you know, where in a submarine it's acceptable to go to regularly to go to sea for six months mm. or longer at a time, for some army units that's never happened. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose the other thing which I'm alluding to here is not just in the, you know, we, if we've got units that are part of the British Army, they have to be deployable. Yes. And I'm afraid we have too many units that are not deployable. But both in terms of manpower and kit and equipment. That's the, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. Um, do you think that the Ukraine crisis has brought the armed forces and our potential for uh, aggressive action more into the public domain? Um, or, or do you think that actually at the moment, you know, the, the current way that the, the sort of the battle is being waged, you know, very much between Ukraine with Western-supplied weapons versus, you know, the Russians who have invaded. Do you think that's that, that's kind of the limit to the public's appetite? I suppose I'm, I must caveat that by saying that I'm deeply disappointed with the Germans' position. Right. Um, that, you know, considering for since the Second World War, the, the NATO troops have been deployed yep. in, Germany in Germany to, yep. to yep. protect them when it was yep. when it was East and West, and subsequently since. But if we take that away, I think the British public have probably more understanding now of the role of NATO since this has happened. That doesn't mean that NATO should be charging in and, and be more active, different yeah. in a non-NATO country. No, no. But on the other hand, the only reason that Putin may not, he still may, but would not go into, say, Poland or Lithuania or Estonia. Mm 
like he has done in other parts yeah. of that part of the world, is because they are NATO countries. Absolutely. And, and the article particularly helps that. Yeah. Interestingly, now countries that were not thinking of joining NATO almost certainly will think of joining But we still have this anomaly within NATO, though. I mean, I mean, this, we're drifting off that subject slightly, but you know, there is a Russian nuclear, no, so an American nuclear submarine in Gibraltar at the moment. Right. And the Spanish have got ever so upset about that. Well, because they don't like nuclear, but they are part of NATO. And by the way, Gibraltar is British. Um, and so very often where ships have been in distress, nuclear ships have been in distress, it's Gibraltar that's opened their doors yeah. and risked their own population yeah. for the greater good. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we've certainly put nuclear submarines into there as well as, as, as other facilities which is one of the reasons when I, I was the Armed Forces Minister when we were talking about the first deployment of the Queen Elizabeth mm. that I insisted that she went into Gibraltar. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely categorically insisted. Not least because we could, um, the arsenals in Gibraltar are extensive mm. and some of the weaponry she, she would have needed as she progressed around would have been there as well. Um, we've, we've kind of focused on the armed forces. Obviously, you know, CF armed forces. That's that's good stuff. That's what we're all about. But just you know, obviously, you're you, you know, you're you're a, a long-term, very experienced parliamentarian. So just to broaden out the, the conversation slightly, um, the government's got a lot of priorities at the moment, um, including obviously the situation in Ukraine, which we've spoken about. But closer to home, what do you make of um, this administration's levelling up agenda? Um, and do you think that it applies to Hemel as much as, say, for example, it applies in Redcar? I think it has to, um, and, it, and it has to for a reason. I was speaking to a colleague of mine earlier on who's got uh, a, a North Midlands seat, and I was, it, it was, I was saying to him, I, I have hardly any right to buy going on in my part of the world, and I've still got over 12,000 council properties. And he said, oh, that was first. why is that then? And they said, don't your people want to... I said, no, a mid-terrace local authority property in my town is over 400,000. Near 450. So how are they going to get a deposit? So, so you get 77,000 as the maximum discount. Yeah. And then how are they ever going to do that? So that's why we sell less than 100 yeah. a year. Um, whereas in other parts of the country, you know, he was, was saying to me the equivalent property in this part of the world is a really, really, you know, done up, all mod cons, yeah. or probably just over 100. Yeah. So. So we, there is this massive diversity around London. Absolutely. And then you've got this other diversity around parts of the country, which um, have had to have changed their industrial base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it surely it's only fair that we share the wealth yeah. if we can. That Definitely. doesn't mean I, I take your tax and give it to someone in, in red car. It means actually that Redcast communications with broadband and because yeah. if you if you improve that sort of infrastructure, this is back to when I was a transport minister. Yeah, yeah. Improve the <laughs> it brings jobs. Absolutely. And if you bring jobs, you bring demand. Yeah. And if you bring demand, then you'll get decent yeah. pay. Yeah. It's really very simple. Yeah, kind of spreading the wealth and making sure that you know. I think sort of Boris talks about kind of ending the kind of postcode lottery, you know, particularly with education and as you've said with, you know, buying a house, kind of, it's about trying to make sure that everyone has access to the same good quality services. And, and you'll always have anomalies, like 
even in the you know even in the south. I mean, you know, you, you know, because we discussed before. I mean, the future ho hospital, the lack of hospital facilities in my part of the world. Yeah. Whereas Hemel is the largest town in in Hertfordshire, um, and will increase in size dramatically over the next few years because there's similar demand for housing yeah. is there. Yeah. And yet we. We, we've got a Victorian hospital in the middle of uh, Watford, and I and I do respect the, the guys in Watford trying to protect what they've got. Yeah. But actually, all what we're saying is, let's have something. We want a piece of that as well. We'll yeah. have a brand new piece that looks after everybody, really. Um, and I think that's all that. The biggest thing that any any government needs to address is not what keeps us awake at night here at Westminster. Mm. It's what keeps people awake at night at home. Yeah. And. While you know we can all be fixated about party gate and bits and bobs, most of the people I'm hearing canvassing and when they're coming in, it's not it's not it's an issue in, in the more affluent areas of the country. Yeah. But on my council estates, they're worried about making ends meet. Yeah. They're worrying about their gas bill, their petrol, cost of living crisis. You know. that kind of um, yeah. And while in it, it'd be different in different parts of the country. But if you've gone from petrol that not so long ago was just around about a pound a, a yeah. litre yeah. to 170s, it was a yeah. massive increase. I mean, I, one of the things I'm going to do this weekend is I'm going to go around my constituency like I do most weekends, but I will actually get my wife in the driver's seat taking pictures of the prices of the petrol stations because I've got the same companies yeah. charging 10 pence a litre more, if not more than that. From the same company, the same fuel coming from the same refineries, and they're just ripping us off. Yep, yep. And Blair, all those years ago, was talking about rip off Britain. I mean, he was a great actor, Blair, but he's actually, in that case, he was spot on. Spot on, we're still living in it now. Um, I've taken up absolutely loads of your time tonight, so thank you so much. Um, but I'll just, my final question, and I try to ask all our guests this, is, is there anything that we haven't mentioned or we haven't spoken about that you'd like to comment on? You know, whether that be armed forces related or whether that's Hemel or local elections or anything. Really. I, I just think, I hope nothing I've said will put people off coming forward. But it, to make things work, you have to sometimes work with the opposition, mm. but you certainly have to work with your colleagues. Mm. Now, don't get me wrong, I've, I've rebelled on, at times when I've felt that I really, really needed to, but at the end of the day, the reason that anybody gets elected as a Conservative, really and truly, is because they've got Conservative brand behind their name. Absolutely. And please never forget that. Wise words indeed. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. And, um, and, and have, a good, have a good week. Enjoy. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this month's edition of the CF Armed Forces podcast. For more information on our organisation, please go to www.cfarmedforces.org. We hope you join us again next month.